0: Team Human is a commercial-free act of love. You can support the team by becoming a subscriber at teamhuman.fm. Gain access to our bonus content from the archive, such as conversations with Timothy Leary, Bruce Sterling, Harvey Picard, Dina Boyd, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, and many others. You also gain access to the Team Human Discord channel and special events in the Team Human High Fidelity Spatial Audio Lounge, including live salons with some of our guests and friends. Join listeners like Luke Mistruzzi, Katie Ruiz, David Kosmator, T.G., and Jonah Boswich. Get all those benefits, plus invitations to our live shows once we're back in the real world. Thanks. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. Our social reality cannot be debugged or rebooted. It can only be lived better and more consciously from this point forward. It's time to achieve coherence, together, right now. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, coming from New Orleans, writer and philosopher, author of The Fall of Language, Alexander Stern.
3: I think this is why I find the Frankfurt School so interesting, because it's not as if they live in a different world. The analyses that they were coming up with at that time are, in many cases, surprisingly relevant to what's happening today.
0: Alexander will help us distinguish between who we are and what we tweet. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. When I was in high school, I was in a play where I got to smoke cigarettes. I say got to, because back then I was something of a nerd, if you can believe that. (laughs) And I loved the idea of... Jocks and other popular kids spying that little foil lining of the Marlboro soft pack, you know, artfully positioned right in my jeans jacket pocket. And they think, oh, look at that. Rushkoff smokes or something. Who is this kid? And I hadn't quite mastered like a natural grip, and I couldn't take more than a few puffs without getting really dizzy, so I'd practice smoking after school in the parking lot behind the convenience store, where a lot of the kids who I wanted to see me smoking also happened to hang out. And I remember I got home one evening after rehearsing smoking, and my father happened to notice the pack that I was basically advertising for my jacket, and he looked at me, and then he... He didn't yell at me. He just said, uh, let's talk after dinner on the back porch. Bring the cigarettes. And I'm like worried about this through all dinner. And finally we get out there and he asked me to smoke one. And I lit it up. And He says, no, 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 the whole thing. And then I'm done. He says, do another. He said, what? He said, smoke another one. He says, you want to smoke? Then smoke. That's what he said. Smoke. Smoke them all. And. By like halfway through the third cigarette, I'm green, just like ready to puke. And my mom made him stop. And then we threw out the cigarettes and the nightmare was basically over. But I think I used, uh, I went to uh, Spencer Gifts and used like fake herb cigarettes, which was a lot easier for the actual play. And I'll never forget how sick I felt smoking all those cigarettes and how little I've wanted to smoke cigarettes ever since that episode like 30, 40 years ago and this past year i started to feel the same way about the internet uh, all this stuff and i think a lot of us have you know in the in the early 90s a lot of us were talking about getting this life of of telecommuting and shared screens and macbook pros and and 4k monitors came along and now we've got all this stuff 24/7 and it's truly enough to puke and yeah it was a relief Or even a slight thrill to get to just stay home and do all my meetings and classes and stuff on Zoom or Skype. And then came more meetings, though, and more platforms and WebEx and BlueJeans and Teams and GoToMeeting and Hangouts and Zoho and Whereby and Signal and Jitsi and days that could have felt Totally full with two live meetings and a little work session with a colleague became jammed then with like six, ten video conferences, two Slack channel collaborations, and an Asana session, all while answering email and staying up on the Discord pings and all that. Smoke them all. You know, as we now well know, all this online interaction can be as draining, even more draining than real life ones. Video chat to live conversation is like uh, smoking is to breathing. Things are going in and out, but there's just no oxygen. There's no prana On on a video platform All of those painstakingly evolved mechanisms we developed over thousands and thousands of years for establishing rapport, all the stuff I wrote about in Team Human, they're all neutralized on these platforms. If I can't see your pupils getting larger as you accept my ideas, if you're nodding your head or if your breathing is syncing up with mine, then... I'm not really there with you. I mean, you might say you agree with me, but without the organic cues, my mirror neurons don't fire, the oxytocin isn't released into my bloodstream, and I don't feel truly received or acknowledged. I go into a state of cognitive dissonance. You know, we, we get off the call and subconsciously I say to myself, well, you know, she says she agreed, but I didn't feel it. Was she lying? And the trust erodes and relationships deteriorate. The the virtual meeting where something was actually accomplished or agreed upon, it starts to feel instead like a fight or a misunderstanding or an unanswered question. You know, it's edgy and unsettled, like, like one too many cigarettes. And I know we're all glad on one level to get back to live work in person with other human beings. I miss the people, the faces, the, the touching, even the smelling other people's lunch. But do we really want to go back to how things were? I don't know. I may I may have this a little wrong as I'm mostly a, a professor and freelance writer, but but is anyone really looking forward to going back to whatever work was like before? For me it meant lots of flying to do talks and going into the city for meetings and conference rooms to hear about people's new ideas for apps and platforms that I just don't really care about. I mean, is anyone really looking forward to going back to some steely office building all day and 5 days a week? Especially when so much of the live meeting we do, it's really about the functioning of some organization or bank or public relations firm or some corporation whose operations are just essentially just as virtual and removed from the real world as any Zoom meeting. I mean, might waking up from Zoom be? waking us up from something else just as removed and and virtual like sitting in a sterile glass room to talk about manufacturing in China and customer service in India and consumers in the Midwest the I mean, chances are that meeting is itself happening around three different conference tables connected by screens anyway, all in order to set new growth targets for products nobody really wants or needs unless there's enough advertising to fool them into purchasing this stuff that's going to end up in landfill anyway. I feel nauseous of everything. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy to work. I'm happy to teach, to build, to farm, to care for the sick, entertain the lonely, comfort the distraught. But this other stuff, this pointless stuff we're being compelled to do so the economy grows for the sake of growth, the flying and churning and spending and polluting that feeds some aspect of the abstracted economy but doesn't feed people's bellies or souls? Enough. This is what it feels like to smoke the whole pack, America. So let's use this feeling to find another way forward. I came across an essay in Hedgehog Review that really helped me sort through some of these issues, especially how to distinguish between my friends as people and the stuff they happen to say on Twitter or other social media. It was a piece called Opinion Fetishism, and it's about the way a person's tweets are being taken as immutable expressions of a person's essential being, how we we can't change our minds or probe or debate ideas. It's as if every tweet were etched in stone and some permanent representation of our true selves, which sucks. So I invited the author, Alexander Stern, a brilliant young philosophy PhD who specializes in the Frankfurt Group and Wittgenstein to help us bring some philosophical rigor to this mess of a problem of identity, language, and expression. I saw your piece in Hedgehog, Yeah, which I don't read these things enough, like Hedgehog and Aeon, the kind of places that you're publishing, because it's like, they're way better than What's out there As long as you don't mind It's like I'll be reading a piece In Hedgehog And then it's like There'll be some Passing reference To like Locke Or (laughs) Kierkegaard Or something And it'll be like Right Okay now Kierkegaard's the one that said You know Because it's been A long time But Yeah You pick my greatest Hit people though You know Christopher Lash And Adorno (laughs) And I had just been Reading Wittgenstein And Or Stein However you say it Yeah And uh, I was like Oh you're like Right you found the same sort of stack. You're in the same section of the
3: library. Five years ago. Those are stack. all my guys. Yeah, I mean, I just those are the people I got interested in when I did my PhD. Wittgenstein was kind of a late comer.
0: Yeah, he was really cool for me. I mean, this this woman I've been speaking with a lot lately, Sarah Pesson, this religion professor in, in Denver, kind of reintroduced me to him. Because I've been working on for the last Ten or fifteen years, uh, appropriate retort to um, Richard Dawkins, you know the guy who wrote the Selfish Gene. I was at a party with him in New York a long time ago, and he was like, "So show me any evidence that we don't live in an evidence based universe." And I got really stuck, and she was like telling me, "No, read Wittgenstein, because he'll show you that that there's no evidence for living in an evidence based universe. That if you're trying to say something else, you don't have to follow his rules." So she she showed me Wittgenstein and all these ideas of of you know having sort of a a a language of meaning that you grow up with that you can create, you can come from somewhere completely different and have a community that that develops a meaning system.
3: I mean, he writes pretty explicitly on things like misuse. I think he would say of science that kind of sees it as a a complete guide to understanding human life and the things that fall outside of that. And this is what I think makes him similar to people like Adorno and Horkheimer. Is kind of what's more interesting <laughs> about being alive and being a human being.
0: I mean, and that's part of what you know what I get from reading your work, which really you know helps me. Is anything that gets really complete is usually a problem. It's like the things that get, you know, totally nailed down, it's like the people that you like are the ones like you say who are a wary. They're wary. Well, <laughs> he's a little wary of this, a little wary of that. It's okay to be wary of things, you know, but I feel
3: like,
0: isn't it? But it's, (laughs) it's almost as if people are intolerant of being wary. Now there's like oh, wary. Well, you talk about it in one of your other pieces. It's like anxiety, you know, uh Oh, I'm, I'm wary. That's going to give me anxiety and anxiety is bad. And I think you're kind of saying the anxiety is not necessarily bad. That anxiety might be essential and, and positive.
3: Certainly there's no kind of avoiding anxiety. It's Part of what it is to be human is to be in this situation that's, you know, groundless in a way. And you kind of have to make a decision for Kierkegaard. It's the kind of leap of faith that says, even though I don't really have rational or scientific grounds for jumping into Christianity, that is where I stand. And I can give reasons for it, but I can't kind of give a completely closed rational account of why... This is the right thing to do. Um, I'm just taking that all upon myself in a kind of singular action, which is what a leap of faith is for Kierkegaard.
0: But it doesn't get you to the other side where you're now I'm sure. Now I'm oh so certain.
3: No. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you'll still have you'll have crises of doubt and you'll have to deal with those. And, and that's just kind of what it is to be a human being for them. You're right to say... That there's another tendency in human beings, which is to try to find a closed system and try to figure out a way of being that pushes all that anxiety to the side. And, And people are somewhat successful with that. But I think for the writers that I'm interested in, that's in a way kind of a self limitation that leads not just to error in like different domains like politics or religion, but also is just kind of stifling for human beings.
0: But we can't help. But I mean, gosh, this is like the human behavior that I observe everywhere, especially in modern times, is the thing that you're talking about. (laughs) You know, I I wrote this piece. I got in trouble for it years ago because people thought it wasn't even real that I was standing next to this teenage kid at at the Foot Locker Uh um, looking at the wall of sneakers. And I heard him say to his friend, gosh, which one of these sneakers is me? (laughs) (laughs) He didn't mean it in that existential way. I understand he meant it in quotes, like, which is me, but that desire to have the sneaker. I am a Nike, I'm a New Balance dude. I'm a new, until I found out that maybe they gave to the Trump. Now I'm like, uh oh, so now I can't be a New Balance person anymore. Now I have to be, (laughs) right? Uh, uh, Something else, a Nike person, a Reebok person, (laughs) Asics person. Who's good, right? Who's Converse? Back to that. I'm a Converse. And that that longing for like the all right i'm a gap twenty nine thirty slim acid wash that's yeah. who i am you know that that <laughs> that that need for for a thing or a yeah. way
3: there is a real satisfaction in that that i don't want to say is just kind of like foolish i mean it's the same kind of aesthetic satisfaction that you find from like putting the furniture in your apartment in exactly the right place or having an old pair of jeans that have been with you for a certain amount of time. And that has a certain sort of value. I think the problem, at least the problem I was trying to get at in the Ion at authenticity essay was when that becomes your kind of project, right? When that becomes your kind of way of being a person, the way of developing your personhood becomes this series of, acquisitions that are you that you see as kind of the makeup of your kind of aesthetic personality right as a project that's quite limiting it's quite it lacks any kind of action and you don't leave anything behind you just kind of create this bubble where you're satisfied with everything that you have and and you feel like you're projecting the right kind of image but that's it there's no You're not really meeting... There's no rubber meeting the road. You're not really creating any traction. You're not producing anything of value to other people. You're not actualizing yourself in the sense that I was trying to get at the essay, which is taking what's inside of you and mixing it with the world and creating something new.
0: Right. I mean, because... I don't want to be judgmental of like, oh, well, new is bad and old is good. (laughs) Right. So I could get in the space where I would say, okay, you know, us wandering around the library and finding the shelf and the like, that's just like, oh, these are the people that I'm, these are the questions I'm concerned with. Uh I mean, that I judge that like as better than finding the store or the fashion that expresses who I am. But, Both are the same – it's the same impulse. I mean, one's not necessarily better than another. In in some sense, the impulse itself to sort of lock down, like as if – I used to think about this actually when I was growing up, that there were these kids that like by the sophomore year of college, they kind of figured out who they were. And on the one hand, I was jealous of them. But on the other hand, I was like, oh, those poor people. That guy's decided he's a yuppie. This one's the guy who's going to walk around with an umbrella. That's yeah. going to be the deadhead for the rest <laughs> of his life. And it's like, right. you just tried on, you became this person rather than staying soft and pliable and open. And you know, you're never going to get to know who you are, but you're never going to have to be that person either. Yeah.
3: I was just rewatching What's the Matter with Baby Jane, which is the, uh-huh. the movie where Betty Davis's character becomes this kind of like child star. And then, and this happens to child stars a lot, I think, when you stop growing up. I think there's another saying that I don't know where it comes from, but the moment you get rich is when you stop growing up. Yeah, <laughs> And so she kind of just figures out who she is and tries to make that work for her entire adult life and it just doesn't, obviously doesn't work. That's an extreme case because plenty of people figure out an adult sort of way of being that does more or less work. But it's a similar problem where you're kind of like, as you say, not being pliable, not reacting, not figuring out new things about yourself as you get older.
0: Right. I mean, it's funny because like people do it prematurely. Sometimes it almost feels like growing up But what it really is, is staying a child. It's kind of like putting on a costume and then believing that costume is you. And you're going to (laughs) play act at that the rest of your life.
3: Yeah, there's an interesting kind of like reversal there where the person who grows up when they're like in high school ends up being the least mature going forward because they've lacked the maturity to not have grown up or something like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But in that piece, there's almost I started to think of like guys like, you know, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, and these guys whose understanding of self is somehow this completely autonomous, free acting. Agent. You know, I've got they always talk about I've got total self-sovereignty, whatever that means. And I always think of sovereigns as kings, but you know, as if you're not subject to the rules or the social norms of your community. It's like rock and roll people. No, they they don't have parents. They just hatched, you know, like Jim Morrison hatched as a complete thing, or Elon Musk has no, he's not tied to any cultural norms, or he's not the result of, of, of a community of Forces. He's just stridently individual, free acting. Do you know what I right. mean? As or if that's
3: how he would like you to think of him, right? Right. That's...
0: But that's a childlike thing too.
2: I'm independent. <laughs> I'm You know, <laughs> mommy can't tell me what to do.
3: Yeah, I think there's some kind of connection there between the. You know, it's not just Elon Musk. It's the kind of tech bro to use a yeah slur. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a certain affinity between what they're doing and, and how they want to present themselves. Like it's creating this new technology that's supposed to kind of hatch this new world. And the new world is one where people are completely kind of unconstrained, right? You can, the most extreme version of that would be like, you can upload yourself to the cloud or whatever and live right. forever. but. Even less than that, it's kind of like you you have this infinite range of choices where you're in control of this set of screens that you can manipulate to create whatever you want or get whatever you want delivered to your house. That also kind of entails a subjecthood that is completely kind of unencumbered and completely separated from history, separated from any kind of community, separated from um, any kind of dependencies at all. You can see the attraction in that. I think we all in this world do see the attraction in that and kind of fall prey to it sometimes. It is a fantasy that can't really be supported in the long term. And it is a fantasy that I don't think leads to any kind of genuine satisfaction in life.
0: Right. I mean, this has been my team human message, really, from the beginning. Uh I mean, once you see that, then the path is not towards individualism, but towards finding the others. How do you create healthy dependencies with a group? How do you make meaning with people together? Right. And then I guess your whole understanding of self and identity becomes happily encumbered in the selves and identities of other people around you.
3: Yes, I think that's right. And I think a huge tendency to just blame that on the technology and to say like, well, because we have these tools, they kind of dictate how we have to use them and we have to, they do automatically atomize us and they do automatically put us in these kind of kind of frictionless world. And I think there's some truth to that, but there's also something defeatist about blaming it on the technology because it's not as if these, technologies came out of nowhere. And it's not as if there wasn't cultural norms that determined how that technology ended up being used.
0: Basically, these technologies did not spawn in a vacuum. There were conditions, whether it was capitalism or or technocentrism or the ego of the developer.
3: Yeah. And so looking at that, a a quote from Minimum Moralia, where Adorno's like, oh, it's already seems like people's uh, opinions are kind of attached to them in this Stigmatizing way where they can't escape them. To me, reading that again, I was struck because I was like, this, is, this sounds like something that would happen on Twitter today. But I think that shows that that phenomenon is not determined by technology at all, even if it's exacerbated by it.
0: When I read your... Um... A hedgehog piece. The thing I got reminded of was um, Stuart Brand, one of the founders of the Well, which was one of the first online places where people people went. You know, even before the internet, it was this big discussion board. And uh, when you logged onto it, the first thing you would see was this statement: "You own your own words," and it was it was really present. The idea, not just that you know you own your words, and no one can copy them, but you're responsible for the words that you're putting out there. And this is sort of the main thing I wanted to talk about today. What your piece was really looking at was how the, the distance between what you say online and who you are is kind of going away. You know, that, that, particularly on a place like Twitter, it's more than just you own or you're responsible for your words, but your ideas and your identity kind of merge into the same thing. You can't do a tweet without that tweet somehow being you. And that's a really dangerous place to get where we can't try on an opinion without being identified with that opinion for the rest of our lives.
3: Yeah, and I think it creates a kind of completely different kind of public discourse, although I almost want to put public discourse in like scare quotes, doesn't feel quite right to say that what's happening on Twitter is that ideas are being debated so much as people are kind of acquiring different opinions and throwing them at each other or fighting with them. To me, it seems more like almost religious dispute instead of a calm, rational discussion of ideas where the focus is not on the people, it's on the ideas that they're expressing. There's a kind of simulation of public discourse. I'm with this group, I'm with this opinion, this set of opinions. I am totally certain of it. I don't need any, I don't need to be able to, de- I don't need to defend it in any kind of rational terms, but I do need to promote that view online, get into spats with people who disagree, and, you know, at the edges, try to get those people removed from the discussion and i guess what i was trying to show in that piece is that it's kind of it has this almost vortex like character where you can kind of jump into it with the best of intentions and and be like I- i'm going to bring uh intellectual virtues to this debate and turn it into you know what it should be and and i've just just from kind of lurking on twitter seen i think those types of people get sucked into this Pattern of wielding opinions as these kind of weapons rather than debating ideas in that kind of productive way.
0: Right. Well, then you, in the piece, you call it quicksand, you know, that you struggle against it. And I know that feeling you struggle against it and you're trying not to. Then you get sucked down further and further, you know, and faster the more you push against that. It's hard because for me, so much about learning to engage with ideas has to do with having the freedom to suppose something, to try on something. I mean, throughout the Trump presidency, every time he spoke, I really tried to try on I wasn't afraid. I tried on his ideas. I tried to, you know, even ascribe more intellectual rigor to what he was saying than he was bringing to it to really see, well, what is he? And I would be, oh, I get it. He's really trying, he's really in his own way speaking up for the ineffable qualities of human dignity that aren't being addressed by a technocratic regime. Or, you know, I would come up with something. I wouldn't dare tweet it. Hey, you know, maybe what Trump really means here is it's like, oh, no, I'll be. It would be like, before tenure anyway, it would be, yeah. you know, career suicide. <laughs>
2: right.
0: But what you're saying is that, that intellectual life on those terms then is, is necessarily shallow, because we can't we can't be dimensional enough to try on someone else's ideas, even if we know we're not going to agree with them in the long run.
3: Yeah, I think you need that. You obviously need the freedom to even say things like, I'm not sure I believe this, but let's Look at this opinion, let's look at this um, interpretation of the facts and see what's wrong with it. Let's like put it over here and put it under a mic- microscope, and we're not nobody's feelings are going to get hurt. But in order for us to really understand what's going on, we have to kind of be able to unpack these different ways of looking at things, including ones that we disagree with, or including ones that, you know are put forward by people that we don't find savory for X, y, or Z reason. It's alarming to me how rapidly that kind of way of understanding what argument, discourse, like education are, how much more fragile that actually turns out to be than I I had been led to believe. Me
0: too. I I (laughs) left – I mean, I didn't leave. I'm still writing whatever, you know, commercial trade books. But I went and got a PhD and got a job at a university thinking I would be – I'm so silly. I'm so naive. Thinking I would be safe or spared from this sort of life or death, you know, accusatorial quality of mainstream media, you know, uh-huh. that I would get tenure, but or whatever. But but in it's worse. It's scarier. You know, you <laughs> I feel like anything anyone says around the seminar table could end up becoming, you know, some federal case right. uh against them. That's not a safe place either. And and that goes back to your this this idea that. That people are ide- are so closely identified with what they say that right. there's no difference. So it's like I'm not I- I'm really stuck because here I am. Uh now I'm considered my grandmother says we weren't Jewish to or Jews weren't white until 1971. But I'll accept, you know, that now I'm essentially uh, I'm I'm looked at as a cis white male. And that means there's certain things I can't even voice. Certain things because I'm not supposed to, because it's not my identity. So I'm not allowed to, you know, speak on behalf of some other identity or that's considered inauthentic. Then what can I, what's left?
3: Yeah, I think there's also a little bit of a pessimism about the ability of uh, people to kind of understand each other that's also being neglected. You know, I think people who come from different backgrounds and have different experiences do very often have different things to bring to the table, but it's not as if when that happens, we're completely incapable of understanding it. Obviously, you can't completely do that, but I think when those matters of opinion become matters of identity, you do effectively close off the ability to kind of really get inside what other people are thinking as well. There's lots of missed opportunities for coming to kind of mutual understanding. And and that tends to turn these debates into fights or these environments where people feel like the best thing for them to do is just not say anything.
0: Right. Or, I mean, it, it, if you do well in that environment, then you go off and start a sub stack, you know, you, you, and that's the other thing it's like, so the, 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 the space for kind of whatever this was public debate or intellectual engagement becomes these really separated little silos and I yeah. get it, you know, so if I can prove on Twitter that I'm either being, you know, victimized by the woke or being, you know, canceled by the anti-woke right now, I got so I got something going now. Now I can get a Substack and a lot of followers and of at least the one side, right? And make hay. But it's it's sad, and I've seen so many of my friends—not so many, but a half dozen or so of my friends—kind of fall off the edge of this thing into one side or the other of that thing, right. and they've gotten. I feel like they're more brittle now. There's a, a hardness and i guess they feel complete which is what you get off that you get to feel complete or saved or whatever it is but right. they've lost that that ability to engage to be squishy in those liminal places
3: yeah and i think the tragedy of it is that if it takes place on twitter it's all kind of a fantasy or to begin with it's almost like a video game if you're you're doing this all in front of your computer you kind of jump on twitter get in a couple of spats with the right people, have the right people come after you, and then get the right number of followers. Substack comes calling. You build your blog there, and you kind of do this all from the comfort of your own home while most of the issues that you're writing about are largely symbolic or largely just take place on Twitter. And this is maybe an exaggeration, but it does have the character almost of a video game where it's like, this is our public discourse, but it's also this kind of game that you can manipulate.
0: Well, yeah. Or live action role-playing game. It's yeah. like you're LARPing or it's like the reality TV version of journalism or, right. or opinion. And I understand if you feel alienated or angered or picked upon or persecuted. You go and you get your sub stack. And right. then people say, oh, well, now, you know, you look at Glenn Greenwald or somebody. Now I'm free of editorial control. I'm free of that. And I can just... But. It sounds like the first thing you were talking about that as a journalist or a thinker, if you become completely unconstrained, like, say, Ted Kaczynski, right, the Unabomber out in his cabin, you could be completely unconstrained. But part of the challenge is you are part of a group. I mean, I've always wanted to be part of a magazine. I I remember like articles about the New Yorker magazine, you know, in the 1940s or whatever, with James Thurber having an office next to this one, next to that one. And you've got to somehow get along with these people. You do have to get it through your editor, but that is not necessarily a bad thing. That might be a good thing that you're forced to wrestle in order to get some version of your idea expressed by this group of people rather than just you out alone on the digital frontier.
3: Yeah. I'm certainly wouldn't say that I'm against people, you know, starting their own blog on Substack. I don't want to sound like that no, at all, but I think God bless. Yeah. I think it If that medium has a future, it is in what you're talking about, which is more collective projects where, you know, whether it's editorial control or you're collaborating on something or you're investigating some piece of journalism together, then then that's a much more promising route than just the single kind of opinion writer on their own, which I think can fall prey to some of all the, the things that we're talking about.
0: Well, I mean you would think that the single writer on on their own on Substack would be like that's kind of where you start out that could be like the yeah. the minor leagues and then you build an audience or get discovered and then a group comes and says hey you know we like what you're doing do you want to join us and you get to be on a on a team
3: yeah, and I think there are there are already those types of projects developing. There's kind of Persuasion, which is this community that has, you know, a number of different writers. There's like the Daily Poster, which is a more, seems like a more traditional attempt to build a newsroom on Substack. And even some of the single kind of purveyors like Matt Taibbi, like he's he looks like he's kind of building something bigger than just himself on his newsletter. So I do think that there's some promise there even if there's also seems to be some risks of Substack becoming or something like Substack becoming a kind of Twitter on steroids or something like that.
0: Do guys like, you know, I don't know how they live, but when you look back at something, say like the Frankfurt group that you studied that had like Adorno and Horkheimer and Benjamin and Marcuse, was he one of them?
3: Yes, Marcuse. He was kind of a little bit of an apostate toward the end, but
0: but they—I mean, did they hang out? Did they like? <laughs> did they? Did they wrestle? Did they? I don't. I mean, intellectually, were they, they were a group, right? They were in Frankfurt. They were hanging out and and yelling at each other and having arguments, but then making up. And
3: yeah, I think the Institute for Social Research was you know a place where a working group of people who were bouncing ideas off each other who didn't always agree on everything, who got into serious intellectual arguments as they kind of tried to understand the society they're living in, basically. I
0: mean, I'm finding part of the reason I even started Team Human Podcast was to have some of those conversations, you know, some of those relationships. And and some of them have, have... you know, have continued on after the initial conversation, you know, it does start to feel like like a posse, you know, of people who are, I mean, different, you know, they're, they're different religions and different pursuits and different opinions, but, you know, engaged at least in a, a supportive, you know, collective inquiry, you know, trying mm-hmm. to figure something out here together. When you look at your, at your work, do you feel like kind of goal-oriented? Is there something if you're not trying to figure out something in particular are you trying to help us in a certain way it feels like you know there's a there's some uh, mission in the collection of what you're doing that, that looks to be kind of trying to figure out how the digital media environment maybe in particular kind of challenges our ability to establish you know relationships against right. this backdrop of you know the cult of, of identity or something
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm mostly just trying to understand what's happening. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think this is why I find the Frankfurt School so interesting, because it's not as if they live in a different world. The analyses that they were coming up with at that time are, in many cases, surprisingly relevant to what's happening today. And if we can understand a little bit better that they have a longer history than that, I think we stand a better chance of improving them, because, you know, in one sense, it's hopeful if it's not just that Twitter is ruining everything, but that there's this longer trajectory of uh, distortion of individualism that's partially to blame, then maybe we can kind of repurpose some of these new technologies, which in themselves have no actual normative value, except the one we give them, maybe we can repurpose them to a better end.
0: A, a lot of people, you know, trace it back to like you know, consumerism and century of the self. And yeah. in, in my work, I usually go back to the Renaissance and Dr. Faustus and perspective okay. painting in the mirror, you know, the invention of the, the retrieval of the Vitruvian man, you know, the the individual man in his study, you know, reading his book. Um, but you, in, in, in your work, you go all the way back to, to Jesus and Moses, <laughs> you know, for kind of two different versions of of self which was sort of interesting to me. I mean, I guess you were talking about two different notions of inwardness.
3: You know, there I was I was really in in a pretty cursory way I think trying to identify the beginnings of individualism with at least western individualism with christianity because I do think that that is kind of a a pivot moment when you have this understanding of God and and inwardness as having this kind of divine quality, which I don't think you get until Jesus.
0: But you get the individual, though. Like, Abraham gets picked out, right? You know, dude, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes, God, here I am, you know? All right, I got, <laughs> I got to talk to you. Yeah, I think he's like, other than Adam, who, you know, doesn't really count, because right. he's, you know, he's the garden. Abraham's kind of the first individual i guess but
3: yeah i mean i guess the distinction i was drawing between moses and jesus was more moses is his mission the one that's he's singled out for and given to him by god is to bring his people back to the promised land and that's once that mission is fulfilled he dies and i think th- there you don't get a lot of you know what's moses struggling with internally what's right. going on in his head what Kind of temptations is he resisting and things like that. Similarly, with Abraham, you, when he's asked to sacrifice his son, if you were, if that were to happen in a kind of modern context, you would get inside of his head and see like how he's struggling with it. Right. Instead, what you get is him just getting the rocks, <laughs> getting <laughs> get the yeah, going through twigs, it. Um, getting ready to go through with it. So. Maybe it's not as clean and fast of a distinction as I was drawing there, but I think there is something to that where you you do have the beginning of a certain kind of inner turmoil, inner struggle to kind of figure out who you are, who you are in relation to God Right.
0: Well, for Jesus it was really hard cuz he's supposed to be kind of be god at the same time.
3: Yeah. It is a person. So it's,
0: <laughs> I would think, you know, I mean, I hard for hard, hard enough time being a man, much less, you know, unless we're all supposed to, you know, we're all like Jesus, which would be really you know, which some people would say, you know, that's that there's the challenge, you know, to Yeah. To live like that, but you know where where it got us in the West was, and I apparently now there's a lot of reason to think he didn't mean it. But you know it got us in the West to the peak of sort of the the cult of the individual, is you know Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, and the ultimate spiritual awakening being self actualization, which right. you know to you or me means nothing, right? There's no self to actualize. Apparently, he didn't mean that. You know that there's some later writing they found which. He believes, you know, self-actualization is actually your your return to community as more of a, you know, that he meant it more in a bodhisattva sort of way. That actualizing the self means becoming of service to everyone else, which I like better (laughs) than the, you know, the California liberals going to Esalen to get (laughs) self-actualized.
3: The struggle is to kind of figure out, figure out who you are by doing things, by producing some kind of work. And I think You know, Marx talks about the creation of new objects through labor as this kind of ability to see yourself reflected in that, in that kind of way that you've changed the physical environment. There's something to that. There's something kind of core about what it is to be an individual that you get through that and that you don't get through you know, figuring out your personal style.
0: These poor people, everyone trying to become oneself, they all end up turning into everybody else. You know, there's no... (laughs)
3: There's no surer
0: path to conformity than striving to be unique.
3: (laughs) It's an ethic that is kind of comes from the advertising industry, so it does lead in a particular type of direction, and it leads into that direction in such a way that it's kind of this constantly emptying well that needs to be filled with more and more products or acquisition or like new styles or whatever it might be, new opinions. I think it's kind of a Dead end.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because there's two paths to it, you know. And, and when I was reading your stuff, I started to think about the the McDonald's and Burger King commercials when I was a kid, and it was like Burger King was all about have it your way, right? So you could hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, you get it customized to you, and that's how you know that Burger King knows the real you. But McDonald's, they didn't have to do that. They just said, "You, you're the one." <laughs> you know that, that was it you're the one you deserve a break today it's you all you come to mcdonald's and it was it was interesting these two paths to the same false idea right that that yeah. we really know you because we just do and the other one we're just going to conform to whatever you want and then that's you and it's like i feel like that's sort of where those are the same two choices that right. seem available to people in this culture today
3: yeah and i think they kind of in- impressive thing about it is the way that it's able to use discontent with its own products in order to generate more desire for those same products.
0: Oh, yeah. Because it's all, I mean, but that's back to Adorno. It's like, they're all coming out of the same factory, right? It's all the same. (laughs) The same six people own them all. So it really doesn't matter which one you get. Yeah. Alas. (laughs) But you can get none at all, I, I suppose. And then...
3: Or you can just get them and not think too much about
0: them, right? right. The rich are going to get rich anyway, you know? So, right, you're going to dedicate your life to keeping money out of Bill Gates' hands. That seems like a futile...
3: <laughs> yeah, I think as long as you, you... Yeah.
0: As long as you breathe and de- get vaccines, right? He's going to be making... You something. don't want
3: to put too much stock in any of this. Like it's The romantics had this kind of... Romantic irony that was this kind of constant shifting of positions we called the permanent parabasis, where you're never, and this is kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, where you're never kind of settled in one particular ideological viewpoint on the world or particular practice, but you're kind of constantly, you know, looking around, looking for different ways of being and kind of developing a self through that practice of moving around and finding different positions, different angles to look at things and, and drawing on other people to do that and not thinking that, you know, the point of life is to find some kind of settled single viewpoint on things.
0: No, that'd be that would literally be more the point of death, right? The the beauty of being alive is you can keep wriggling around. You keep changing. And, you know, that's why, you know, even in the Talmud, they say you're not allowed to remind someone of something they said in the past because they're supposed to be able to be free of it, you know? So everybody set your Twitter to erasing. I mine erases everything like 30 days old or longer. I mean, I know someone could dig it up from some archive or whatever, but the idea that, you know. Uh, the sounds fade. The thing, you know, gosh. As long as you're alive, use the opportunity to 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 keep on changing, and then start to see that process itself as the thing to maintain fidelity to. You know, that's that's the continuity, not the particular idea, but the ongoing inquiry and turning over of new ideas and changing one's mind. You know, as long as you can do that, um, I think you're connected to the great the great project
3: yeah i agree
0: well thank you thank you alex stern for for retrieving my (laughs) hope in that project and being on the side of supposing supposing new things and you know keeping that that sometimes uncomfortable churn alive and uh, uh and available
3: thank you thanks for having me it was really enjoyable
0: Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Alexander Stern, author of The Fall of Language, Benjamin and Wittgenstein on Meaning. You can find out more about him by going to teamhuman.fm, where you can also support the show by clicking on support. Team Human was produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.